I'm Amy Helfer-Lamb. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guests today are Landon Mascareñas and Donnie Tran. Dr. Mascareñas and Dr. Tran are co-authors of the recently published book, The Open System, Redesigning Education and Reigniting Democracy. Welcome, Landy and Donnie. Wonderful to be here. What do you mean by an open system? Well, first off, Amy and John, we just want to say thank you for having us on and thank you for all the work you do to spread the word about things that you care about in education. We need more advocates in education, and I think that's a big part of your all's role. And I just want to say thanks for inviting us into the space. Very welcome. You know, and I feel like we have all the time zones covered actually on this podcast today. So I think we're pretty good. So The Open System is a book that brings in a concept that began in biology and organizational theory back right after World War II, which is that organizations, organic systems, cybernetics receive information from their external environment. And in the Open System book, Donnie and I bring this concept into education and use it as a way to understand the closed legacy systems that we've inherited in education that have failed in too many places to co-create and co-design with the communities they serve, to propose path forward for more openness, which is more co-creation, more co-design, and an opportunity for citizen participation in the foundation of our democracy that can not only bring the future of education to the present, but create the opportunity for more and more of our citizens and community members to participate in such a critical aspect of our society. You delineate three phases of shifting a system toward openness. Perhaps you could take us through those phases and give us a few examples of what they look like. So we conceptualize open system work in three phases, preparing, provoking, and propelling. In the preparing phase, it starts with the internal reflection of what what does it mean for to be an open systems leader, and then looks outwards to understand, well, what is the context in which I'm working? Well, how do I define community in the context of openness? The the provoking phase is, is then about how do you create a space where really open co-creative work can actually be done, bringing people together, inviting with intention, bringing those people into a space where they can really do deep work. And then also in that, also within the provoking phase is enacting and modeling a more robust and creative democratic process for deliberation. And where the, the unusually inclusive group that you've brought together is actually assembled to do and, and train their shared expertise on a shared problem. After the provoking phase, we're really then looking at how do we really propel openness within your organizational context? First, we think about doing that through uh, assembling abundance partnerships. So in the spirit of there being enough resources and and time and energy for all for all organizations that want to be a part of the work, how do we form those kinds of partnerships so that we can expand our capacity? And then the final part of propelling is looking for opportunities to expand openness within your system. After you've had a successful open co-creation process, what are some other opportunities to also engage in that similar kind of work? 
I'm interested in this idea of an open system leader. Is it usually an individual who self-identifies and says, I want to start this work? Or how do how does that process work? Well, one of the things that was really important to Donnie and I in the course of writing this book is that you know, his experience in Georgia and Boston being a senior leader in school systems and my experience helping to run the family engagement office here in Denver is that we got to know a lot of these leaders, um, leaders who were leading turnaround efforts in fundamentally different ways or really inspired to think about the kind of economic development of their community through their work as a school leader or through as a superintendent. And so we really sat down with a bunch of these folks, interviewed them and spent time working with them to understand kind of what were some of the key things that we saw. Um, and it's true. Some of them kind of came to this work because they had to, because they were involved in a project that kind of provoked them to confront themselves or confront the system that they were running as a closed system, or maybe in their heart, more closed off to the community than they wanted to be and had to reconcile what that meant to actually lead in a co-creative fashion. But there's a few things that we saw in these leaders that were really important because we it, it is hard work. It's not exactly what the system is, was originally designed to do. First is that they were very aligned in their purpose, their passion, and in their place, the community that they're working in. And that when they were really clear on the question they were there to answer, that their job and work in the community gave them passion and energy. And when they were very curious and clear and grounded in their community, it unlocked significant amount of kind of reservoirs of energy and opportunity for them as a leader. The second thing that we saw in all these leaders is a commitment to being a democratic leader with a small d versus a kind of an autocratic leader or a centralized kind of command and control leader. And this is a leader who takes on big questions as what does it mean to confront the past in this community, but also move us forward? And then how do they also hold their heart open, their mind open, and their spirit open, which was some work that we found from Otto Schwarmer and the theory you practice and was very aligned to a lot of our work. And we found it to be really integral to a lot of the open leaders that we met along the way. Are these phases, do they progress in a linear fashion or is this work ongoing? Yeah, we we wrote the the book and laid out the principles and phases of this work because we we did find that there is a little bit of linearity to it. You do progress uh, to some extent through each of the phases that we were talking about before but that it's often also recursive the the you might find yourself after having for example defined a shared problem and a shared reality you actually may need to go back and reconsider the group that you have put assembled together and and introduce additional voices and capacity in order to be able to do the work that's just one example of of being responsive and not just barreling ahead you know in a sort of bull, bullish way it's actually thinking, pausing, reflecting about where you are, what you've learned, and how you might need to respond, which we think is also critical to an open system leader. In the book, you mentioned your work with several specific groups in different contexts. Could you describe a couple of the groups that you worked with and sort of what that whole thing looked like, what the groups looked like, and what they were working on? Sure. I'll start with a couple examples of work that I kind of either worked on or thought was pretty interesting as we got to dig into the book. And I'll let Donnie share a little about some of the projects that he was kind of more connected to. The first one that I think is really interesting to talk about is the Homegrown Talent Initiative, which was a project 
focused on rural Colorado, eight school districts with the intent of building out pathways, internships, career-connected learning. And so much of that work that is pretty hot in the education space right now is actually just done by usually a group of teachers in a back room designing kind of a credential path. In the Homegrown Talent Initiative, we said, actually, we're going to do something pretty different. We're going to actually ask each of these communities to come together with their business leaders, their civic leaders, students, parents, in particular students for this from opportunity, and say, what is our aspiration for this work in our community, whether it's Holyoke, Colorado on the Eastern Plains, Clear Creek, Colorado up in the mountains, or Durango down in the Four Corners region. And in these projects, the kind of engagement and partnership and new energy that started to flow into each of these School systems, you know, there's kind of a misnomer. Sometimes people think in rural communities, everyone hangs out everywhere, they get along for everything. But actually, in many of these places, the school system and the higher ed are literally across the street from each other and don't work together. The Homegrown Talent Initiative created an open system opportunity for leaders to call a new community into existence focused on the idea of the edge economy, this idea of education and economic development in rural communities. Um, one of the other projects that we talk about in the that was, I think, particularly relevant in the COVID pandemic was Chicago Connect, which was a project to bring a significant amount of community stakeholders together to co-create with parents and families a dramatic increase in internet access during the COVID pandemic to parents and families. It's an example we use in the Abundance Partnership chapter. It's a really powerful example of kind of rejecting scarcity dynamics and doing co-creation work and partnership work in a pretty big way. And it's received a significant amount of awards and a recognition for the level of impact it's had in families and kids. And I'll share a little bit about work that's happening at the state level in Kentucky. What I appreciated about the stories we were able to tell is that they span school level open systems work, district open systems work, and even at the state level as well. So we were lucky enough to be a part of a project called the Kentucky Coalition for Advancing Education where we worked with the Commissioner of Education and the Department of Ed to bring together an unusually diverse group of stakeholders that is actually twice as racially diverse as Kentucky as a whole to reimagine what the future of education should look like in in the Commonwealth. And we engaged in an empathy-driven process where each of the members of the coalition went out and did empathy interviews with people in their community brought those back together, made sense of them, and came up with a list of themes that really articulated what the problems with the current system are from their perspective, and also named an aspirational future vision for the future of education. That report became the launch pad for a local design process that was replicated across 18 communities across Kentucky to reimagine the student experience and also to change the nature of assessment and accountability. And so the State Department was then in the position of listening and learning from the innovations that were happening across the state and was itself embodying kind of an open system stance. What were some of the obstacles that these groups had to overcome and what enabled them to remain open systems? It's a really important question, John. I mean, I think there's a few things that we talk about throughout the book is this is clearly a different way of operating than our traditional public education or just public systems at large. And so it requires new muscles. 
at the leadership level, at the school level, at the system level. And what we often recommend to people doing, and some of the examples we give in the book are pretty big system shifts. Obviously, what Donnie's talking about in Kentucky is pretty big. The discipline work in Boulder was a pretty significant process. But we also talk about the kind of micro openings, the home visits, the family nights, the opportunities to listen and learn, to redesign how parents enter the buildings, and to reconceptualize how the information flow occurs between the school and the community it serves. And that's really at the key part. So in each of the situations that we've talked about, whether it was in homegrown talent or in Kentucky, usually one of the first things community members kind of say to these leaders is like, are you serious? Is this a serious effort? And what does it mean to kind of take you credibly? And leaders, whether it's the district leader or the school leader, have to spend a lot of time often processing the history of their community. You know, there's an old adage in education that schools are the stages where our community dramas play out. And indeed, in many of these places, that's a big part of the energy that the leader has to hold is the backstories, the channels, the kind of history of what's happened. And then we often have to kind of help them and they have to help themselves through breaking through some of the traditional way that we've thought about task forces and committees or processes in the past. And we talk about this also in the book is that we have to admit to ourselves that the way that the task force and committee has often been done in education is broken. It's a part of the reason why we see so much failure and challenge in this work around the country. Typically, you know, there's an application, the same people apply, they get on a task force and the group meets one hour a month, every month for the rest of the year. And there's not much culture, momentum or clarity or shared reality built. We really recommend a fundamentally different type of process. We recommend that people have different methods of selection for different types of constituents, the kind of essential stakeholders in your community you know, versus the interested stakeholders that will apply versus taking an approach that's emerging in the democracy innovation space around the world, which is leveraging something called sortition, which brings in a kind of a, almost like a jury panel in for a discussion, it, which disrupts the traditional players, quote unquote, to have a different type of conversation. And so these are the challenges that openers face in all these circumstances. And a big part of the book is naming those things and helping people with some clear moves on how to work through them and hold a space that will kind of create that openness and then take everyone to the next page. I think that one other challenge that there's often face early in the process is not being clear enough with what the project is meant to do. And what boundaries or guardrails need to be taken into account. People can swing kind of a little bit too wide on a, on a, on a spectrum between having a completely blank slate and not giving any guardrails at all, and then having to impose a bunch of constraints later because they weren't clear up front. Or on the other side, be having a process or a project that's so narrow that there's actually not a lot of room for creativity or co-creation. It's actually a little bit feels like a fait accompli to the community members that are a part of it. And so defining some, some sort of project where it's clear what the community is going to be able to do and have space to be creative within is part of the challenge, I think, for a lot of initial openers. Well, obviously... Openness is by definition important, but uh, how do you contend with organized groups that want to ban books or are overtly racist or homophobic? Or how do you 
deal with those sorts of situations? Well, I think it's a really important question, Amy, and it's something that we're talking with folks all over the country about. And it's a major concern of educators in lots of places. If we open the doors, what's going to happen when folks who have dramatically different beliefs or potentially even, in some cases, violent beliefs walk through the door? And I think that first and foremost, you know, obviously, Donnie and I stand united against any sort of hate and believe deeply that schools and our education system should be inclusive places where all students are free to be their full selves. And so that's just full stop what we believe. And we actually believe that openness is a key aspect of building a world where that actually gets to occur. Because when we've seen students and parents actually involved in process, we find that on by default, typically it starts to listen and engage in fundamentally different ways. A huge part of the processes that we've run, whether we're in conservative rural communities or in progressive communities or even somewhere in between, is spaces where empathy interviews occur, where participants actually go and sit down with students and learn about their experience or other community members or businesses. And back to the composition of the group that we talked about earlier, I think typically, or maybe most often, the kind of one to five most angry folks that show up at the board meeting aren't invited into a robust political process that actually includes a significant diverse set of voices in the community where they have to advocate for their beliefs alongside lots of other folks. And typically, we've kind of gotten to a point where we've kind of forgotten how to practice the idea of sitting down and having those conversations. And I've been in the room with people when they've shared those beliefs, I would say, that are potentially hostile to kids and their identities. And when students and parents and other community members say, well, that's not what we stand for, and that's not what we believe, and part of our work here is to design something for the system to move forward, a democratic process occurs where a shared reality builds where people say, yeah, you can believe you know, a thing and we may very much disagree with you, but we're hearing so much else here. And through building a consensus process, when we've worked on these processes, typically we shoot for between 80 to 90% agreement on critical issues. And we have found that oftentimes just the very act of learning together softens people's beliefs and encourages a different type of discourse to move forward. And, and in fact, I think an important thing to name is that we've actually seen community groups, both from the left and the right, be told, no, you don't have a place in this school, and that that actually just builds the pressure on the other side, and that there becomes more and more questions about what's happening in the school when it's just like, no, your questions are illegitimate. And I've seen that actually happen with lots of civil right parent organizing groups who have put pressure on schools to become more equitable. Schools often say, you know what, we don't need this pressure. And so while I might have a political belief that says a certain thing, we think that the work of the school leader, the work of the open leader is to create a space where pluralism can mix it up and a space is strong enough for a shared reality and discussion to emerge. You mentioned, you just mentioned the idea of looking for 80 to 90% agreement. And in the book, you, you know, are very clear that you're trying to move away from a 50% plus one kind of decision-making process. Could you talk a little bit about that? What's that actually look like in practice? Sure. Well, a number of potential consensus building and consensus driven decision-making processes that we discuss, but I'll bring up one concrete example. So there's a process that's familiar to folks in in education, a lot of education circles called fist to five. 
So it's a way of signaling the level of agreement instead of making it a binary. So a, if a proposal is clearly stated, then the group, you know, the assembled group, which could be any number of people, either put, put up anything between a fist to a five. So one, two, three, four, and so on. And a fist means that it's blocked, like the proposal can't move forward. And the five means like incredible levels of excitement for the proposal. The, and so for something to move forward in a traditional fist to five process, you could have fours, fives, ones, twos from, you know, a distribution of those across the whole group. And it would signal then that ones aren't thrilled about it, but they're willing to go along with the proposal as stated. And what we have found is that we can often get to consensus actually, but we set the bar in some processes at up to 10% of the room can put a block on a proposal, which is much, much higher of a level of consensus than 50 plus one. And it really can, you can really feel the energy when people are displaying that level of commitment through that consensus process. You know, we were really inspired by a lot of works that occurred in the 80s and 90s around the subject of communitarianism, which was kind of a strand of political thinking around understanding the dynamics of how communities come become bound together and evolve and shape over time. And one of the things that was very clear in a lot of the communitarian literature is that a brittle majority actually does a lot to pull a community apart. And that 50 plus one as a decision-making process has a significant impact in the 49 that get left behind that may actually be just inches away from agreement on the actual proposal to Donnie's point. And we've seen this over and over and over again, where actually people who politically may think themselves on the same page have really interesting conversations when I'm a five and you're a two and you have a concern. I'm like, oh man, I didn't even think about that. It moves us away to Donnie's point from this dichotomous yes-no thinking toward a deeper understanding of what it means to build and bridge together. And I think pretty important to kind of a part of that fifth principle for us, model creative democracy. What does it mean for us to understand other ways of being and practicing democracy in the indigenous communities. Consensus was often deployed as a democratic structure. And I think that our American system, we've really become obsessed with 50 plus one. And I think it's important for us to understand other ways and approaches of, of making decisions. Many creative initiatives don't survive their founders or key initial participants. How can this be avoided? Sure. You know, one of the most important things, John, that you bring up is the idea of kind of a durable solution, something that actually keeps going beyond this like important, like breakthrough moment. And we talk about that a little bit in the book is that where we've seen a lot of really creative openers succeed is when they're really leaning into the idea of co-creation. Hey, I'm starting a new school. I'm starting a new initiative. We're going to design this new thing together let's co-create and let's bring all these stakeholders together, business community. But one of the things we talk a little bit about in the book is sharpening our understanding of going deeper into the implementation work around co-production. If co-creation is the promise, co-production is the commitment. Keeping stakeholders at the table in the long term for the implementation of the exciting creative initiative in the year zero turnaround schools that we talk about in the Knowing Your Community chapter in the book, Denver Public Schools embarked on something called year zero turnaround, where instead of just 
kind of turning the switch over, handing a new leader the keys and saying, go do turnaround, which we know has failed across this country. They said, actually, we're going to we're going to hire two leaders, one to hold the ship together for the year, a veteran leader, and we're going to hire a new leader to do a community design for a full year to bring the community on board. That act of co-creation was very powerful. But these leaders didn't stop there. They actually reconfigured those advisory committees that helped them design the school into oversight groups where parents and businesses and community members participated in the ongoing management of the school, which allowed FWIN, and many of these leaders have since departed, community members to still be committed and connected to the ongoing work of building a school. It's hard work. It's challenging, but we think it's a really important discussion to have to move from co-creation to co-production to make the work successful. And and we also talk about the need to focus less on perfection and more on progress. A lot of the things that can blow up emerging openness is when it doesn't meet this mythical bar of a perfect system. What people need to sort of ground themselves in is making progress towards being more responsive and to celebrate that and, and appreciate the what they've learned from going through that process. And we have a, a phrase for it that we talk about in the book called communitas, the sense that we need to just take a step back at the at the sort of close of a project and acknowledge that there was incredible progress and incredible learning and to to name and catalog some of that for the collective benefit of everybody that's there. Because it's it's really those those lessons, that metacognition about how we did the work and what we accomplished that can provide a lot of momentum into into a, in the next into the next phase of work. Mm. Well, often these types of partnerships fall apart because of conflicts over money or credit. How do you avoid this? Man, Amy, it's so real. It, we, you see it all the time. We talk about this a lot in the Abundance Partnerships chapter. Why did they get the grant? Why are they working on that thing? Why aren't we the lead on this? It's a significant challenge in our space. And I would say that in the social impact community, the nonprofit space, we see a significant scarcity orientation that, that ruptures and actually damages a significant amount of partnerships, usually at even before inception. And if they survive inception, then the ongoing work is tremendously challenging to kind of hold the pieces together. Um, we talk a little bit about how the opener needs to reconceive of a more of an abundance frame, which is kind of rejecting a tally marking system, who gets credit here, who gets the dollars over there, and really lean in to radical clarity and real conversations around what is the actual issue with the money? How do we work together? Let's give real feedback on the issues. A significant amount of our experience when these partnerships fall apart. And, you know, I've been a part of many coalitions, managed many endeavors like this. And some of the most exciting partnerships that I've seen really move into an abundant space. And, you know, for example, I'm working on one right now where a dozen school districts are working together in new and exciting ways. I mean, that's pretty hard. A dozen school districts building shared capacity. I mean, that's a lot going on there. There has to be recognition that not everyone will be in the front all the time. And there has to also be a trusted convener, an intermediary, a broker that allows, whether it's a facilitator or a kind of neutral space that everyone trusts. And oftentimes this doesn't occur and there's not enough intentionality in the construction of the intermediary or the broker and the commitment to clarity. As my dad says, clarity is a gift we give to ourselves and other people. 
And that's a key aspect of how the work has to move forward. How do you resolve tensions and issues of differential power between those furthest from opportunity and those with technical expertise or institutional power? Well, one of the things that we try to do at the beginning of any creation of a, of a working group or a task force or a coalition is name that we actually all have expertise in, in very different things. And that we our job here is to surface all of that expertise and create a space where we can learn from one another. And so that's a that's a great way to sort of begin a process. But the question is, how do you then actually live out that commitment? And in a couple of processes that we've we've worked on, actually building in opportunity to reflect on their experience as a member of the team in ways that are increasingly verbalized. So, well, we, we create opportunities for people to pause and reflect on power dynamics, and we do it in, in a scaffolded way where they get to do it sort of privately and for themselves, and then making that, that reflection more and more public so that everybody's learning about how their engagement is shaping the experience of others in the room. And so it begins as like a personal reflection, and then it becomes an anonymous survey, comes debrief, like a verbalized coalition. And that, and that process can really help shape an environment and a space where people feel like they are equitable contributors. I think one of the things that we designed in the book to really take on this question is in every chapter, in every set of principles, we have a call out for what's the liberatory move around this principle. So in the questions around your leadership, like who are you listening to? What's the affinity patterns you're most interested in listening to? Are there like race or class groups you're most attracted to having conversations with? When you think about your community, when you think about designing a breakthrough space, um, who, what kind of tables are you building? Who are you going to, to have conversations about your community overall? And in every one of the principles, we actually list out a series of questions that leaders need to reflect on to ensure that they're really taking on a commitment to ensure that all voices are included in the process, in particular, those for this opportunity. You've cautioned about issues with raising initiatives to scale. Could you talk about this? Yes. One of the things that we really think is important to the concept of the open system is something that we learned a lot from Margaret Wheatley about, who is just an awesome leadership writer and scholar. And her book, Who Do We Choose to Be, was a critical touchstone for many of us in the COVID pandemic to kind of understand. And she actually talks in the book a lot about kind of open system design as kind of moving from a technical to an organic understanding of systems and humanity. And as you can imagine, an open system does a lot more of an organic, connective, regenerative process. The information flows in, the system redesigns, and like breathing in and breathing out, creates an opportunity for revitalization and new life to be occurring. And oftentimes, our very technical, technocratic compulsion to grow and to scale means that we find ourselves actually pressing copy-paste on solutions that worked in one community into another. And that if we actually think about adaptation instead of replication and scale, then we can really understand the work of community-driven design in a fundamentally different way. When we think about the Homegrown Talent Initiative, we're going from eight communities to over 60 communities across Colorado. That's an enormous amount more uh, communities a part of our our wider community. 
And yet we are holding space for every single one of those communities to go on their own journey, to define their aspirations differently, to define how they think about their priorities differently. And we're thinking more and very consciously not talking about replication, talking about adaptation. And I think that that kind of inspires and connects leaders in fundamentally different ways in in the approach. In in the context of Kentucky, we went from six communities to 18 and saw very similar things. And I think as we went through those cycles of growth, we, in the spirit of openness and co-creation, we invited each of the earlier cohorts to help us redesign, edit, adapt, and transform the process for all later cohorts and got them into community with one another so that they could really be learning about each other's experiences. So, For educators who are listening and would like to get a process of openness started, where do you suggest they start? I think that what we try to ask people to consider is what is this, what is the thing that would benefit both politically and technically from the process of co-creation? And where is the open opportunity that, that presents itself? And it has to be a, a meaty enough problem that is is worth people's time and energy, and that and it also has to be an opportunity that has the support of the sort of executive or manager in that person's life and the sort of governance structure that is around them. So, for example, if you're a school leader, you would need to consider what your supervisor would you know be open to co-creating around. And also your, you know, if you have a board at, if you're a charter school and you have a board, or if you have, you know, some sort of governance council that oversees your work, there has to be space that they would define as being open for co-creation. And so what we've seen is that conversation proceeding in a, in a thoughtful way from a leader and, and deciding that, yep, okay, we can maybe take on our scheduling process or, oh, what about grading? You know, there you can, but it, it really is up to that political choice within the context of your setting. What is possible? What is the open moment that's available to you in your community? And we really think that question around possibility is everything. Because we want to, the, the open system work is about trust building. Um, and we've seen lots of very well-intentioned educators and system leaders just because they feel burdened by the past, like we talked about earlier, and a lot of top-down initiatives just say, well, let's do whatever the community wants. But that might not actually be politically possible or feasible. And by by actually inviting that sort of conversation, you actually then degrade trust in the system in the long term. And few things do that than a failed community process. An open systems mindset is very different from what most people involved with schools have experienced. And I can imagine even somebody who really wants to start this process or be involved in this process may have lots of questions and may have issues with actually how to do it. So how do you train and support people in making this transition? It's a really important question, John. And I think the first step is kind of building consciousness about your system and understanding where it's on, closed to open dynamic and 
I love this kind of idea of questions. We really spend a lot of time in the book and you can probably see with asking questions because we think that each community has different answers. And so we really say that there's a ton of questions on how to do this. We have some moves and principles in the book to guide the way forward. But critically, it's about questions and inquiry and curiosity to move toward an open system approach. And what it's going to look like in Akron is going to be different from Holyoke, Colorado. That being said, Donnie and I are very interested in some innovative ways to approach this. We've been working with an organization called Seek Common Ground over the past six months to essentially do a leadership network where leaders from around the country, education coalition leaders, nonprofit leaders, district leaders come together to actually practice this work and simulate the work of democracy building. So that's your Amy, you'd be the mayor and John, you'd be the superintendent. Donnie's a parent and I'm a school board member. And we have a kind of a dilemma that we have to actually simulate and work through because let's be honest to your point, John, no one gives our teachers or educators or system leaders at bats on working with community. It's a very high stakes, scary thing to do. As Amy was talking about earlier, there's so much politics right now in our education system. And we say that the answer is not to avoid the politics, but to actually train leaders up in practicing ways of having a hostile conversation with community members or to kind of come to a consensus agreement or to deal with all sorts of decision-making and structures that come with it. And we think that's going to be a lot of fun to keep playing and exploring with leaders from around the country. And the the, the joy of working with those leaders has been a blast because first off, it's people just have such a good time not doing sit and get, which is our traditional way of delivering PD and education. And actually getting up and moving around and having conversations. And as the model UN nerd in me, I get a, I get a kick out of seeing people do it too. Well, and I think that many of your listeners might be familiar with the wonderful writer and organizer, Adrian Marie Brown. And she has this wonderful saying that small is good, small is all. Don't be afraid of the small open bite. Just try, try a little bit of co-creation on precise. If you're a teacher, Collaborate with your students to create a classroom structure or system. If you're a principal, work with some parents to, you know, redecorate a hallway or, you know, like the, the bites don't always need to be like swinging for the fences in terms of what you co-create or what you decide to make open to your community. Just embrace, embrace this, the smallness of it and be okay with it. Thank you, Landon Mascarenas and Donnie Trant. The book is The Open System, Redesigning Education and Reigniting Democracy. And thank you, listeners. Check out our new video series, What Would You Do? A collaboration with Ed Ethics and Justice in Schools. Go to our website, ethicalschools.org, and click video. In the first case study, a teacher using Action Civics faces pushback from a parent. The goal of this series is not to provide right answers, but to illustrate a variety of ethical viewpoints. If you found this podcast worthwhile, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website for more episodes and articles and subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We can work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. 
We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week. Mm-hmm.